Welcome over the ball, everyone, with Kevin Flynn alongside media executive Grail Hallett and soccer journalist and OTV producer Sam Griswold. Well, it is September as we head into the fall and winter, the home stretch, which is certainly the weirdest year in my life. I tell you that I kind of kind of can't wait for it all to be over, but move on. We must somehow. So today's guest on Over the Ball, a man who is uh, who could perhaps Help us make sense uh, of it all, though I doubt it. Uh, formerly of ESPN, Mr. Bobley will be our guest on OTB today. I'm going to put Bob on the spot a little bit and ask him about the intersection of sports and politics, something he certainly has uh, had to contend with during his long tenure at ESPN. And I've uh, and I've got to you know ask him about the passing of a sports idol growing up uh, that I had, um, even though I was a Red Sox fan. I was a huge Tom Seaver fan, um, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Tom Seaver past yesterday. So uh, I have a story about him as well, but I, I want to hear what Bob has to say about that. So gentlemen, before we get going on OTB and get to uh, the general, Bob Lee, what do you have to report? What are you over today on Over the Ball? Okay, well, I'll go, go first. Grail. Yeah, Grail, yeah, go first. I, I'm, th- this is kind of a, a broad yet focused what I'm over. So, so I'm over ignorant owners across all sports franchises showing their true colors by just making idiotic and tone deaf statements. And specifically, I'm talking about um, the owner of Real Salt Lake, uh, Deloy Hansen, who sounds like, by the way, he's like a Southern Scandinavian. Sounds like a blues singer. No, Deloy Hansen. No, he sounds like a guy who was like born in the South and then moved to Scandinavia or something. Anyway, he came out and basically said that he was, uh, he felt disrespected by his players who decided to sit out a game last week uh, in a, you know, as a protest for the uh, Jacob Blake shooting. And uh, anyway, um, just again, a litany of owners that across sports that come out and make these statements and he's going to se- end up selling the team because he's nobody's get- got the patience for him and his <laughs> ca- caveman thoughts. He's getting out of the game. You know, look, these guys, I, I understand his perspective. I don't under, I don't agree with his opinion. But, I mean, the thing is saying I'm paying you guys. And this is where we were three years ago when we were talking about Kaepernick. So, um, you know, I pay him. He should stand up. It's like, well, he made know. it about him, though, Flinny. He said he felt disrespected. I mean, there's no acknowledgement of the issue at hand right, and why right. his players are choosing to do this. He personally felt disrespected. It reminded me a lot of – the guy who runs our country. So there you go. Well, you know, that, I was just going to make that point because we talk about the, the Black Lives Matter movement. But if you listen to certain people, all they talk about is the rioting. No one is for the rioting. If you riot, if you break stuff, you should get arrested. You're breaking yeah. the law. And I think they do a disservice to the movement when they, they wreck stuff, when they riot, because uh, then people won't talk about the movement. Uh, some people who actually um, care. So look, a lot of this is about being on the right side of history. So we'll see how this plays out. Sam, what do you got? Yeah, I have sort of a broad thing I'm over this week, which is just sort of the relentless engine that is global soccer, which just never seems to stop. Uh, I feel like this year more than any, because we had so many games in such a compact period of time, uh, I feel like I could use a little bit of a break. But, um, you know, we we barely get a week (laughs) off. We got Charity Shield. We got Nations League, which I don't even know what it is. Uh, so no, no time to gather ourselves, but I could have used a little bit, a little bit more of a break this year. Now on that point, Sam, we as fans and spectators watching the game, covering the game, we could use some rest. Imagine the players. It's, yeah. There's been, there's been no rest. And this is going to play into something we're going to talk about a little bit in the show as well about the five substitutions rule. 
um, where I agree with it in certain cases, and uh, but I don't want the purity of the game to go away either. So, uh, but before we get to all that, because we have a lot to get to on OTB, um, I want to get over what I'm over. It's not really what's something I'm over. I'm very sad. I mentioned it in the opening, but the passing of Tom Seaver, um, it just he's just such an iconic figure of class and what athletics was supposed to be about, to commitment mm-hmm. to your sport, to your fans, to your team, uh, and just being a great individual um, in, in, in different ways. You know, some of my guys, I had Dr. J, who I was able to meet uh, and, you know, check off my bucket list. Uh, Joe Namath, who I got to meet. I've never met Bobby Orr, believe it or not. Um, mm-hmm. And he's one of the ones I was on my list. The other one was Tom Seaver. Even though I was a Red Sox fan, he was bigger than the game itself. And so I, I did meet him. And I wanted to just tell you quickly about, you know, uh, about meeting him. I'm living in Boston. And one of the things uh, I did stand up for a club, for a, uh, an athletic club, a squash club, basically, that had gym and all kinds of college <laughs> girls stand, coming through. Stand up was offered as part of the membership? <laughs> no, but uh, it was a great club. Club. It had, you know, weight room and a basketball court, and but it had squash courts mostly. It was called the Austin Brighton Squash Club. And I did their Christmas party, and I got a, a free year membership. Every year I would do their Christmas party. And uh, so I learned how to play squash after I, you know, was, was playing, uh, you know, in the, in the league in MISL for a couple of years. And then went to Boston and coaching at BU, but I was playing squash every day trying to stay fit. So one day the club pro goes, hey, Flinny, what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting for you know, uh, for my buddy Jackie, we're going to play squash. He goes, hey, will you warm up my friend Tom? I go, yeah, sure. So go in there and start hitting some balls. And, you know, the guy uh, is just, you know, he's a squash player. He's playing really kind of well. We're just kind of warming up. And all of a sudden he like starts doing some serves and he's doing the overhead serve, you know, with this the squash ball. His, his arm is making a noise, like nothing I'd ever heard in a squash court before. It's like a this. howitzer. It's like, it's like, whoosh, yeah. whoosh. And I go, I go, Jesus, Tom, you have a hell of an arm on you there. And he just turns and looked, and for the first time looked straight at me. And I looked, I go, oh, Jesus, you're Tom Seaver. For God's sake. <laughs> I didn't know it was Tom Seaver. I'm playing squash with Tom Seaver. And yeah, he I'm, had a pretty good right arm. <laughs> he had a great right arm. But he, you know what I also noticed about him? Uh, you see it with like, um, you, you know, you look at like a messy, the way you built that stout sort of way. Yeah. Now, Seaver was much taller. But yeah. he had those big legs. Massive legs. Massive glutes and, massive. and legs. His legs were huge. And, yeah. uh, you know, this is what we've talked about, Christian Pulisic. I worry about him because he's a great player, but he's thin. And it's tough yeah. to take the beating. And um, anyway, so that's my Tom Seaver story. It's very sad because it's the passing of a, a just a sort of a generation here. And uh, so, so a part of our childhood, Flinny, right? I, I just remember 69. I was nine years old. And that was when the Mets came back on the Cubs. And I just remember kind of following that as a kid. And Seaver was the guy. Right. He was the guy. He was, he was the amazing Met. If you're going to define that team, it was Tom Seaver. And, you know, this is a soccer show. We're all players and we're all fans uh, of the game. But, you know, sometimes in sports, like I said, things transcend sports itself. So we talk about a lot of things uh, in this game. And that's why I feel like sometimes uh, we need American voices in the game when we're covering soccer. Because I remember I asked Rebecca Lowe when I interviewed her. I was just I, I kind of got an, an inkling of something. I started to she was asking me about a midfielder who played for Everton in the early 80s. And I said, I. I don't know who that is. Oh, how could you not know who that is? I'm like, because uh, we just didn't get it here. It wasn't right. here. I said, do you know who Will Chamberlain is? She's like, no. I said, Larry Bird. She's like, no. I go, Bobby Orr. So look, these are our American experiences through sports. And I, I see a lot of commonality within them. And so, mm-hmm. uh, 
yeah, we're a soccer show, but Tom Seaver is uh, what you should all try and have your kids try and be and, and uh, as, as far as athletes are concerned. So, all right, so let's talk about soccer a little Good bit. Good idea. Uh, um, Weston McKinney, I thought of you right away, Sam, because I want to get your perspective on Juventus uh, signing him. A lot of people, we talked about it last week, thought maybe this is perhaps a little too early in his development. You thought Southampton was a little better uh, place. How, how are the Italians, the media, and the teams uh, reacting, and, and why do you think they made this move? Yeah, so the move has been finalized. We just reported it was kind of about to happen last week. So it's a one-year loan for, I think, 3 million euro with an 18 million euro um, buy clause at the end, um, which I think Juve have to exercise. I think that's built in. Um, But regardless, he's going to be at Juventus next season um, and likely beyond. Uh, So, yeah, the, the, the reaction from the media seems to be that he represents a very modern player in terms of a midfielder who is, you know, capable of playing in front of his own back line, pressing high up the pitch uh, and brings a sort of pace and physicality that is maybe lacking at Juventus, if not in the Serie A in general. Um, there is some talk about where exactly he'll fit into the team. Obviously Pirlo is a manager who we have no idea about. Um, he's never coached a real game before. Um, he said he's not wedded to one kind of formation. He's going to see what he has and try to make the best of it. But there is some talk that he may play in a back three as a defensive player um, and sort of be used as a little wow. bit of a utility man. Um, the, the concern around him that I'm seeing coming from the Italian media is that he maybe does not have the technical ability to play in the middle um, on a team like Juve that want to move the ball really quickly, really efficiently play, you know, mostly one and two touch. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like there's a little bit of bias there. Towards yeah, a, that's an American bias. I yeah, think. A, an American bias, and B, also someone coming from the Bundesliga. Yeah, um, yeah. So we'll see. I mean, uh, another thing that's mentioned a lot is that uh, Matuidi left Juventus uh, this summer to go to Inter Miami, and he usually, uh, in Sadi's Juve and in Allegri's Juve, would play the left side uh, midfield role in a 4-3-3, which is essentially just covering for Ronaldo. Uh, who does absolutely nothing defensively. Uh, and there are some people who think that McKenney is sort of a natural fit to take that role and be more of a stay-at-home inside central midfielder. Uh, and that, that's a big, you know, that's a big ask. That's a big job because, um, yeah, Ronaldo doesn't, doesn't help you out too much. So you said last week, though, Sam, you were concerned. You thought that Juventus had to shore up their midfield. What else do they need in there and who will join McKinney? Uh, well, they have Rodrigo Bentancur, who had a really good season. He's probably the only Juve midfielder who had a good season a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have Artur, who came in from uh, Barcelona in the Pjanic swap. I think we'll probably see those two guys in the center. Um, but, you know, if he uses a three-man, you know, the sort of three central midfielders that a lot of Italian clubs use, I could see McKinney um, getting in there and getting some time. All yeah, right, Sam, so, so, Sam, I'm, I'm sorry, Flynn, I just ahead. wanted to jump on that. Um, it'd be interesting to see, Sam, how they approach it, if, if they kind of throw him to the wolves right away and see if he can deal with it or if they, like, ease him in. You know, I think the Alfonso Davies situation is a good, you know, uh, comparative point. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, everybody was like, how could this guy possibly play? at this level and then of course oh, i didn't say that i mean i he thought proved he every no but I, I'm, I'm actually just saying over there flinny yeah not you know, that quick canadian guy played in the played in mls you know whatever we're right. we're, we're bayern munich 
and he proved them all wrong. So it'll be interesting, Sam, to just see how they handle, how Perlo, Pirlo handles uh, Weston. You yeah, know, kid, for sure. Kid gloves or just toss him in there. Yeah, I, I hope, you know, more than anything that this leads to some interest from over here uh, in the Serie A because uh, he's a really good, young, fun, exciting player playing in, you know, one of the top eight, ten teams in Europe. I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Right. So um, Pirlo's made some moves quick. That's one of them. Uh, the other one was he told Gonzalo Higuain um, – that these, his services were not needed. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Igor, <laughs> who's kind of been in the wilderness for the past three seasons almost, he's bounced around. He was at Milan for a second. He was at Chelsea for a second. Uh, and then he was back at Juve this past year. Uh, looks like he's on his way to Inter-Miami. It hasn't been you know, fully confirmed yet, but that looks to be the deal. Um, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I think it may, he didn't play a ton last season. Did manage ten goals altogether, which isn't terrible. But um, there's been a lot of you know talk, and you can back me up on this, Grail, about his kind of motivation and his discipline off the pitch. Let's say. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, really? Is that is that the 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 deal with him? So Miami, there'll be no opportunities at night. <laughs> exactly. Well, and Miami has this funny, it occupies this funny space in the sort of Italian cultural consciousness. It's this kind of sort of dream destination, you know, the, yeah. the ultimate luxury beach life, you know, sipping on a cocktail in a recliner. America, you know? baby. That's what they all look for. <laughs> yeah. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think I played in the soccer tournament and I was living over there where if you won the tournament, you got like a free trip to Miami. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of you know, cultural pull that it has. So we'll see how he does. I, I don't know. Well, all the, all the Brits, you know, wanted to go to either Florida or Southern California, right? That's where they all ended up because they just looked at it as a vacation. But uh, yeah, Iguain, Sam, kind of reminds me of a, a wagon with a wobbly wheel on it. I just, I, when he was at Chelsea, first of all, I couldn't believe Sorry brought him in. And it was a very short-term loan situation. And uh, yeah, I just feel like he's lost if not one step, two steps. Mm. And uh, he's, he's had an excellent career, but I just, you know, I, I just feel like his better days are. Behind. I just, I worry about the motivation playing in MLS. Yeah. I mean, he, he was at his best when he was at Napoli with Saudi and, you know, that was after he'd kind of been cast aside at Real Madrid and he had a lot to prove. Uh, and then he made, you know, the huge money move to Juventus and that was kind of, I don't know, there, there was not, not a lot for him to show at that point. So I, well, I his brothers had great success here in uh, in MLS in America. And probably said, "Come on over, the water's warm." <laughs> so, say, hey guys, so uh, we've talked about some some trades, but we haven't talked about, believe it or not, Messi and the Messi update. Oh. Who wants to take that one on? I, I actually the Messi like watch. I call it the Messi uh, watch. It's, it is a Messi watch, and so uh, I, I say this: I kind of want him to go to Man City because that'd be it's very. I'd love to see you know, Man United is getting better, uh, is strengthening. Liverpool is great, you know. We get to see him play more. I don't get to yeah. see him play for Barcelona as much and all his greatness. Um, but also, they're talking about at the end of his contract, spending a couple of years here in MLS, which I think would be fantastic. So uh, yeah. what are you thinking and what are the uh, what are the odds? We have uh, odds makers here? Yeah, well, I, I pulled up a few odds yesterday on an Italian website. Uh, right now, he's mostly favored to stay at Barcelona at 1.75 to 1. Man City's not far behind the 1.9 to 1. Then it drops off to Inter three to one, PSG thirteen to one, Juve fifteen to one. I'm standing by my original prediction. I think he'll stay at Barca next year, so, whether because yeah, he's forced I, or whether because he agrees some kind of compromise. It, as a fan, I'm of two minds. I'd love him to stay at Barca and finish his career there. The flip side of that is what he would do to the Premier League would be massive. 
-hmm. And it would just, um, you know, the ratings would, every time Man City plays, the ratings will go through the absolute roof, which benefits the league and it benefits Man City. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I just like the idea. It's so rare that a player plays his whole career in any sport at the same place. And so kind of the romantic side of it for me is that he would stay at Barca. And Barca would find some players to actually make them competitive again. Because there would be nothing more depressing, Sam, that if he stayed at Barca and Barca really sucked for like the next three years. Mm-hmm. And that would yeah. just be a disaster. They've been mismanaged from the top for a couple oh, of years. Yeah. And as, and as uh, you know, no respite, no, no safe quarter for Messi because he doesn't get it when he goes back to Argentina and now in, in Barcelona as well. So I think... I. I think uh, it's been played out there, and I think he'll get. Um, I think he'll get some blame if he leaves. He'll get some blame if he stays. Uh, and I think he probably just wants a new environment. I, I, I don't blame him. And I think derail that whole play for the same team for the whole time. That sort of Ted Williams model. It's just like it's just kind of gone. You know. It's just yeah, but but it, I mean Derek Jeter. I mean there are some athletes that do it. It's not like it hasn't happened. You're right. It's not. You know, free agency and and people chasing money. It's just the what it is. But uh, I'm just it. he's Barcelona so linked. Fan. He's so linked to that club, though. Oh, absolutely. He well, is. He he is Barcelona. I mean, honestly, what is Barcelona without Messi? As far as I'm concerned, yeah, they're, they're always in contention. Always in yeah. contention because of yeah. him. So yeah. um, you know, but I, I just think I have a feeling he's going to wind up at Man City, play for Pep again. He knows what he's going to get. It's a known commodity. Oh, he'd be so and, uh, ridiculous on the team. Oh, it'd be fantastic. They don't, they don't, they, they, but they'd have to learn how to play with him because when you insert a player of that caliber who plays a certain way into that system, which is already works pretty damn well. Kunagoro and De Bruyne? Are you kidding me? Like, they could build. They, oh you know, they, they, they've got it. Uh, so. I'd like to see him go to Argentina eventually one day. Speaking of romance, I think yeah, he go back to Newell's old boys or whatever team he was on. No, Rosario, I think it was. All right, yeah. so so guys, let's switch um, uh, a little bit here and get uh, to the college game because boy, all of us would be heading off to preseason right now, uh, or we'd be in preseason. We probably have our first game already as a college player. So. Um, you know, first week of September, last week of August. So what, uh, what's the update? Uh, well, Grail? yeah, so, so on the women's front, the NC State women's team won't compete because they have a depleted roster. This is kind of a similar uh, refrain from a lot of teams. They just don't have enough players because, like, in the, in the case of NC State, they've got 20 COVID clusters on the NC State campus right now. They got the same problem at North Car- at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, you know, the it, same problem. They're going to have the same problem yeah, at every college. Exactly. We, we exactly. talked about it. We talked about it last week. Where I know, and I said this with my daughter. You know, they want your tuition. You're going to pay your tuition. You're going to go to the school. There's going to be an outbreak, and then they're going to send everybody home. And they said, "Well, they're you know they're going to have them go to school a little early in August, and then you're going to come home for Thanksgiving and not go back." Well, you know what? It's it's too late. The cat's out of the bag. They're they're all being sent home already. Yeah, over a thousand in Alabama, over a thousand at uh, University of South Carolina. I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah, and so a lot of players are opting not to come back this year and take a red shirt. So, so I'm going to take the full year off. Um, you know, BC men's soccer again. They're going to sit out the fall season. The ACC soccer season is set to start September 10th, but they still don't have a schedule. 
It ain't, <laughs> it ain't so I don't know who's playing who. Guys, the three of us may have to be recruited down to the ACC mm-hmm. to play. I don't know. Are you ready? Yes. Well, it's interesting. I saw something in college hockey. They're going to allow players who are currently at schools to play junior hockey and have it not count against their eligibility. So we That's don't, a good idea. We don't quite have something like that in soccer, but I wonder what these guys – you know, they're going to try to find a way to keep playing. Stay, but you stay either sharp. take the fall off, Sam um, – or, you know, and then red shirt, or you take the full year, just like it's a gap year. Mm-hmm. And then you come back in 21 as almost as if it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> happened. But then, occurred, of course, we have no idea if there's going to be a spring season, if there's going to be a fall season next year, everything is so up in the air. And the, I feel like the conferences are just grasping, just holding on for dear life for something good to happen. But it ain't, we all know it's not going to happen, right? Or it's going to happen and it's going to be uh, canceled quickly and yes. everybody's going to look foolish. So, um, yeah. all right, so let's talk about some other changes here domestically. Uh, this really surprised me, guys. He's been a, f- uh, a frequent guest here on OTB, um, our old friend Kyle Martino, who's not so old. I think we're the ones who are old. But he is, uh, he is leaving NBC. There is no way – I always tout this guy as the best American talent in the booth and, uh, you know, in the studio there. And so here's the guy we're always talking about how, see, it is possible. You can have a great American broadcaster. And now he's, he's leaving. So he's got to be going somewhere else. That would be where my money is. Yeah, my money is he's going to CBS. I, I called the internet before the show to see any indication of where he's going other than them saying that he's leaving NBC after seven years. You know, Tim Howard as his replacement, um, Kyle set a high bar. I mean, Kyle is one of the most articulate people on TV sports, period. I don't care whatever sport you're talking about. The guy is fantastic as a studio analyst and has a very uh, broad UVA (laughs) college vocabulary. So, you know, I like Tim Howard. I just feel like, you know, it's going to be hard not to compare Tim Howard to Kyle. And, And Tim just has to make sure he doesn't wear pants that were quite as tight as the ones he wore on the set of the Turner broadcasts. Yeah, he was like, he looked, he looked, he looked, and with his, his beard, he looked like a half jihadi, uh, half skateboarder, <laughs> half jihadi uh, every day. So, um, yeah, but we wish Tim luck. He's obviously uh, oh, yeah. of course, a legend, of course. A legend think, in the American game, and we try to get him on, talk about and, it. And by the way, not for nothing, it's great having more diversity on broadcasts, so that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just it, Kyle. Kyle was just spectacular. It's and you know, hard to replace him. Tim will be able to understand him. We won't have to listen through a thick English accent. Though NBC does a great job. So, uh, so best of luck to uh, Tim. And then Kyle, best of luck to him wherever he winds up. We'll keep you posted here on OTB. Maybe he'll uh, be the face, of kind of the, one of the faces of CBS Soccer. Who knows? Well, let me get back a little bit to um, to some some movements that's been happening. I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Sam, about Zlatan. He signed another year extension with Milan. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's a good move. I mean, Milan were really pushing hard for this. Uh, Zlatan, as ever, was, you know, all ambiguous about what he was going to do. Um, <laughs> but he, he was great the second half of the year and scored 10 goals. Um, but he also really reshaped that team. I mean, they were really lacking a central target player uh, like Ibrahimovic. And, I mean, well, you guys can – Tell me what you think. But, you know, it's hard not to compare Zlatan to Ronaldo, um, you know, because they're both two legends coming to the Serie A sort of late in their – well, coming back in Zlatan's case late in his career. And I just really think he helped Milan more than Ronaldo has helped Juventus, despite the fact that Ronaldo's put up, you know, way more goals. But um, 
they were just a different team when he was on the field. Everyone played with a lot more confidence. And, yeah, I think it's a great move. The guy, the guy Sam, is still a beast. He's in ridiculously good shape. I mean, uh, not that I ask a lot of players to take their shirts off, but when Zlatan takes his shirt off, you're like, <laughs> yeah, oh, my easy. God. That guy, no, that guy looks like he's 25. You know, as a point of comparison against, like, a Iguain, um, like Zlatan to me is still a force on the pitch. He is yeah, absolutely. still dangerous. His shot is still incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just a beast. He's impossible to knock off the ball. And then he's got all the requisite skill yeah. to go along with it. So I, and, think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. And unlike Ronaldo, which I mentioned earlier, he really yeah. works hard uh, tracking back and, you know, gets right in there. So well, yeah. some, sometimes to his detriment, Sam, because he is a guy who you can just see in you know visibly when the switch is about to go off when he chases a guy like 20 yards down the pitch and just takes him out but give me that guy seven days a week versus Ronaldo when he loses the ball puts his hands up in the air and doesn't move yeah absolutely play to my my other foot uh so and you know one point of pride I think as an American I have is uh you look at, at Zlatan he's also a black belt and apparently Gooch Anyehu got the best of him in a locker room dust up, which I love. That's, yeah. Really? Yeah, apparently Gooch got the better of him. So I think they were, they were mouthing off and jawing with each other. And Zlatan took a swing. I would not mess with Zlatan, man. That guy is. And apparently, based on, based on my story, don't mess with Gooch either. So yeah, I mean, when Zlatan's six three, isn't he? Yeah, I think so is Gooch. I think he, Gooch. Is yeah, he's here. a. I mean, he's a big dude. He's a big guy. A bigger so Gooch, but I guess they asked Zlatan. He said it was a very good fight. <laughs> Perfect. I don't know if that's that a. Was good, no, that was a pretty good slot time for the Well, it didn't sound Indian. I'm glad we didn't go down that right. trail. Now, let me ask you this. Either one of you guys want to take a pop at this. UEFA Nations League. I What, who, where, when, why? I, I just don't. What, what is the story? Explain this to me. Well, I, I'll do my best. I mean, this is kind of part of what I was over at the beginning of the show these games that you don't even know what they're for anymore. Um, you know, this is kind of conceived as a way to replace pretty much worthless friendlies. Um, it's putting all the teams in Europe into three different tiers, you know, group A, group B, group C. And you basically play every team in your group, I think, twice home and away. And at the end of the season, so in June or May, um, you have a little final four to decide the winner. And if you finish last place in your group, you get relegated down to the B division. If you're an A, vice versa, you go up if you're your B. So. Uh, it's something to keep track of and follow and, you know, bring a little competition to, you know, these otherwise kind of meaningless games. So for that, I'm okay with it, but uh, I, it's annoying that I have to read sort of a primer every time it's on. To but some of those matchups, Sam, on. that you sent were mouthwatering. Yeah, I mean, there's I good games. Say, yeah. So Germany, Spain, Netherlands, Italy, and France, Croatia. I mean, those are three yeah. spectacular matches. You know, provided provided they can field. I know Pogba tested positive, so you're going to have some players that can't make it. But if you can trot out, you know, 80% of your team for these matches, I mean, th- those are six of the best teams in the world going away. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm being hypocritical because I'm yeah. obviously going to watch these games. Um, yeah. Right. You want to see? I still don't understand it, too. Just to be fair, Sam, I've never understood what the Nations League is. I've. It's just – it's curious to me. I have Sam, no idea. Sam just explained it to us, Grail. Wow. Yeah, no, no, but I'm no, but I'm just saying going into this, I've been like, uh, what? Okay. Hey, so you mentioned Pogba's uh, 
a positive COVID test. Uh, a couple other players as well, Sam, huh? Yeah, PSG, Neymar, Di Maria, and Leandro Paredes uh, all test positive. I think they traced it back to at least Neymar was in Ibiza on a little holiday. Um, so I certainly don't blame players for wanting a little break, wanting to get away, but uh, I don't know, maybe not the best destination, let's say. Yeah, um, that's well, you know, and then the season starts up soon so uh, all right so yeah, we have prim- by, by the way guys I, we weren't going to talk about this but i don't know if you read about that dust up that harry mcguire had uh, i think in mykonos in greece uh, yeah he was over there with a group of players and he has to go back for a court case and you've got two stories that are polar opposites the authorities said they were drunk and disorderly and the players were saying we did nothing wrong and uh of course if you can imagine the british tabloids were just going crazy over but I couldn't I couldn't but he's got to go back to Mykonos at some point and maybe it's in yeah. the later in the fall or something to like he may have to go to trial on this unless he just settles it but uh, yeah just crazy stuff uh, he'll go on a private jet it'll be all it'll be all set <laughs> so, uh, so the Premier League Charity Shield game uh, Grail I'm sure you took that one in well I yeah I, you know it's one of those games that's you know it is kind of the always starts the, uh, the the new season, right? Because it's the winner of the the previous league title winner, Liverpool, against the FA Cup winner, Arsenal. And uh, just everything is so out of off kilter now because of the way the schedules worked. It's like, oh, my God, we're playing that already? And, and it was a one-all draw after regulation, and Arsenal won 5-4 on uh, penalty kicks. Aubameyang scored an amazing goal in regulation and then got the decisive penalty kick. And, uh, you know, of course – Liverpool looked, you know, so-so. So, of course, yeah. everybody's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, Liverpool's just not going to be the team they were, were last season. And maybe well, they, have, so, they, haven't been, they haven't been that team for a little while. They here. really haven't. I mean, yeah. they haven't been that team since the restart, to be honest. Right, right. Right? I, I agree. They got, they got knocked out of Champions League. They, they kind of were playing just so-so. They weren't playing. They, they built up enough cushion to be able to ride it through. And conversely, Arsenal is on the way up, and they're, they're yeah. going to be joined by Willian soon as well. So. Yeah, I, th- I think they're going to be a team to look out for. I just think Arteta really has a game plan, and I think he's a good communicator, and he's kind of bringing the Man City system to so, Arsenal. So we're talking Premier League. Um, the big controversy going on right now in the Premier League is the substitutions, the push for five substitutions, the push which is being made mostly by the big clubs. Uh, and understandably, these smaller cu- clubs are really concerned. now. Uh, I believe that the five substitution rule, this is my personal belief, is, is good during this kind of weird, wonky time that we're going through when the players don't have that much rest. But it's clearly, clearly uh, an advantage to the big teams that have huge rosters, uh, player after player, you know, great players coming off the bench who'd be stars in any other team uh, for the little guys to keep up. What are your thoughts on it, fellas? Yeah, I mean, one one aspect of it I hadn't considered was just how it helps these big teams also keep more guys happy. Um, right. Because when you – a team like Man City where you have, you know, 22 guys who are, you know, top players, inevitably someone's going to be kind of out of the fold. Um, sure. And, you know, getting more opportunities to get them in kind of keeps everybody, you know, uh, just a little a little more agreeable, let's say. But uh, – I don't know. I don't. I don't mind it. I think for this season because we're still yeah. in just such a strange time. I mean, FIFA said leagues can do this up to August 2021. You know, I don't know. Going forward, 
maybe five's too many, but for this season, I'm, I'm okay with it. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of with you, Sam. It it is, you know, if you're a man city and you have five guys coming off the bench that would be starters on any other club in the EPL uh, it's, it's such a massive advantage. And I couldn't agree more about keeping guys happy because you could say to somebody like Gabriel Jesus or Mares or somebody, Hey, you're not, you're not going to play this game or you're coming in later. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just keeping, like you were saying, you're keeping everybody happy. Most teams, most other teams dip in their level when they bring subs on because there's a reason they're a sub. They're not starting because they're not good enough to be in the starting 11. That's most teams. So, but, I, but I'm with you for one year, for one year, but I think they should say they should probably make the stipulation that this is for the upcoming season Right. Only because right. I think if they don't, it's going to become the new normal. I think it will become the new rule moving forward. Yeah, they'll, they'll push for it uh, for sure. So plus, you know, you think about a, a you know a midfielder, you're going up against somebody for you know, supposedly 90 minutes, and at the 70th minute, you know, Willian comes out and Pedro goes in. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> quality player for quality player. <laughs> And you got a fresh pager running at you, you know, so. Um, yeah, as a player, uh, Flinny, you always knew when the subs came on, although, you know, because we played in college, it was unlimited subs. It was a little different. Which I hated, which I hated. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate it. I hate the whole shuttle system. But but in general, you know, you, you knew that when somebody came on um, that they they weren't good enough to be in the starting 11. So they might right. be running around for 10 minutes like a maniac, and then they'll be subbed out again. But uh, All right. So I want to ask you this. I just – just kind of came up, Grail. This is in your wheelhouse. The Premier League cancels a 564 million pound Chinese TV contract. What is the deal with that? That's a lot of money to cancel a contract. Yeah, so I did, I did a little cramming before the show, and I'll give you my very top line take on it. It's a staggering amount of money for the Premier League to walk away from. It, and on top of the losses that they've already realized related to COVID. So... However, this Chinese, I think it's PPTV is the Chinese company. They were in arrears to the tune of about 150 million pounds. They hadn't paid essentially for the content that they had been given. So I think you just have to make a decision as a league. Are we being jerked around and are we being prepared to continue to give content or programming and not get paid? Or are we going to draw a line in the sand and basically blow up the contract? They're not going to find 550 million pounds floating around somewhere else. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. You know, apparently Chinese companies look at contracts as being, <laughs> I guess, just renegotiable or whatever. They were up in arms. But look, I, I know a bunch of, uh, you know, high-end businessmen who have had deals in China and at the very last minute, the Chinese government stepped in and just changed the deal. Took yeah. it away from them. And, you know, that authoritarian sort of uh, ruling. So I could see... They say, Adam, we, don't, we won't pay you. So I can see them well, pulling games early. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because the Premier League has basically said we've canceled the deal. The Chinese company said, no, we canceled the deal. But they're the ones that owed the $150 million. <laughs> so I don't know how they could possibly say they canceled the deal. I broke so, up with you. You broke up with me. No, no I broke be up. interesting. And, and who knows? You know, it, it's such a weird <laughs> thing that maybe they do come to an agreement. They wanted to renegotiate the deal. The Chinese company said, look, this was a very weird season. We didn't get our full value for what we paid. And, you know, the Premier League was like, what are you talking about? We played all the games. You got all yeah. the value. You got all the – and, by the way, they also – in China, they took it off one of the major channels and, and put it down to a lower-rated 
channel, which meant that they weren't getting the viewership that they had promised. Mm -hmm. So anyway, who knows? So but it's a huge amount of money. Oh, I'm so sick of all these TV rights squabbles. It seems like more important than the game now. When it's also, Sam, it also speaks to the fact that everything in broadcasting and in content is sliced and diced a million ways. Yeah. So well, right. think about that, Greg. Could this ever be a possibility? What if there was just a TV channel that had like the best games of the day on the best four games of the day, regardless of league or, you know, you didn't have to subscribe to a whole pack. A, a super league network. Yeah. Well, it'd be, I mean, it, it would be, it would be very difficult to put together, mm -hmm. honestly. And, and if you're the leagues, you want to basically have sky TV, PPTV, Amazon, you know, you get X number of games, you get X number of games, and every one of those collectively adds up to billions and billions of dollars. So yeah. you will look in every possible way to slice it up as many ways as you can. You know who I think would be great to comment on this? Uh, our guest today. So uh, yes, let, let's uh, wrap it up. Uh, we always love talking to this guy. So we're going to take a quick uh, break here on OTB and be back with the legend, the man, the myth, and the legend, Mr. Bob Lee. So stick around on OTB. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com. And when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball is, uh, well, a man who we greatly miss in the broadcast world, to tell you the truth, and more specifically for us in the soccer world. Uh, he's the former host of Outside the Lines, a multi-Emmy Award winner. He's the longest, was the longest tenured on-air employee at the network at ESPN. He joined there three days after the network's 1979 launch. I think he was only four years old at the time, uh, before retiring in June of 2019. So uh, this man has seen it all. Mr. Bob Lee, welcome to Over the Ball. How are you? Greetings, and get your verb tenses correct. I'm out of the game. You're out of the game? I think I did correct it on the fly. On, on the, yeah, like, kind of like a, you bobbled the first touch, but you collected well. <laughs> well, it's like, my, it's like my soccer touch. That's what it was. It's all yeah. about the first touch. So, um. All right, so Bob, we wanted to call you in with everything that's going on. It's, uh, it seems like the intersection of politics and sports has always been a, you know, really a tricky thing to deal with, um, something I'm sure you've had to deal with over your long and storied career, but uh, it has seemingly moved to the forefront of late. Seems like, um, I don't know, athletes across the whole entire landscape, every sports are sort of having a somewhat of a political awakening and, and flexing their, their power. Um, so you've seen a lot in your day. Does, does this feel different this time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is, a, there is an empowerment that you can sense with athletes that is very different here. Um, look, we've never seen, I think, socially, and put, take the sports and put it to the side, just socially and politically, the convergence of two, you know, two tectonic plates at the same time, which you're talking about the, the pandemic and what that's done to this country. Uh, socially, uh, financially, um, and, and, and in terms of public health, and at the same time, uh, the the upcry for uh, for social or for for racial equity, and and that these two, each in their own right, the story of a of a decade, uh, would 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 coalesce within you know weeks and months of each other. We've never seen that, so I mean, it's changed the landscape, and within sports, absolutely, you see players. You see unions, you see um, 
an absolute empowerment that feels very different. And I, now, now whether that remains is, 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 is the curious thing. Um, you know, you see players concerned about uh, medical safety and medical uh, protocols. Uh, in, for example, in college football, at the same time, you see uh, reports that the Big Ten and the president have had conversations about possibly reversing their course and coming back. So I, I don't know at the end of the day where this is all going to end up. Everybody talks about getting back to normal in terms of everything. There's, that's not going to happen. I mean, there are a lot of things that will never get back to where they were. Uh, ask any small business owner. Ask uh, you know, in any number of ways. I mean, you know, the benefits have been, you know, socially, we've been pushed into telemedicine. Uh, that's a benefit. Uh, you can question the benefits of educating people remotely. But, you know, a lot of people are probably getting instruction who wouldn't otherwise. My point is, yes, it's different. Yes, there's a different uh, sense to this now. And I think it's great. I, and, I, and it's extended all the way down, you know, well into the college ranks where the, you know, college athletes have been the product for decades and now finally feel I think emboldened by the cocoon of change that has come around them that they can they can group together and uh, there's someone immunized because of this um, you know if you're in a position of authority you're going to think twice three times four times before really pushing back on on, on demands on on viewpoints on whatnot because it is a very volatile situation. Now, some of it has morphed into this, you know, the, the absolute uh, metastasization of, of the cancel culture, where if you disagree with the dogma, you're going to get run out of town on a digital rail. Right. That could right. happen. But yeah, things are different. People feel empowered. Um, and, we, you know, I, I hope we're all taking stock and taking notes of what we're watching because history is happening around us every day. I, when I talk to young student journalists, I speak to a number of colleges, I tell them, you have the opportunity here to, to really learn from what's happening around you. And you look at, you know, Bob, you know, outside the lines, which I miss you as the host, it was my, my daily watch um, to get me caught up on everything. And the amount of times you covered the Kaepernick story, you know, going back, what, three, almost four years now, um, to watch how that has changed. Uh, you know, it's um, it sort of seemed to, you know, Grail, before we got on, we were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and how more people support it now in you know, greater numbers. But to see how the Kaepernick perspective has changed and how the commissioner comes out and basically reverses what, what his stance from before. But another thing that you talk about is the college era, which, uh, the, you know, arena, because you have professional athletes, they're getting paid, they're on a salary, the college athletes aren't. And it seems like right now, they're thinking about money and about people's attitudes to sort of change what they're thinking about. Uh, and they're putting those concerns over medical to say, hey, get back out there and play football. And I think there's, that's where a lot of the hes hes hesitancy is, as I hesitate on the word hesitancy. Well, I mean, I mean, you, that whole play or, or, or meta, you know, or, or, or weight argument is, you know, it's beyond the political, but, um, I, I think most players are concerned. I mean, and, and again, I mean, you know, how, how much reporting can you get out and do with your own shoe leather in this now? And next to none. I mean, we're all stuck in our basement on Zoom. You guys look good in the little tiny box that I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I've been encouraged by what I have seen that, you know, the athletes that I've seen, you know, been aware of and, 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 and heard about and, and talked to other people about in college. Uh, have put personal safety over the resumption of games. I mean, you see the cultural differences 
between and among the college football power conferences. I mean, the SEC is the is NFL light. Um, yeah. the, the Big Ten Conference, four of the 12 university presidents, I believe, are physicians. And that's a very different. Oh, wow. You know, they're all research schools. I and, mean, you know, whether they reverse fee, I, I wouldn't put money on, on the reversal of, 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 of field there. Um, so uh, that, that athletes who realize, A, they are the product, B, they're not getting paid. Everybody's getting paid except them. I will insert parenthetically, though, I still, I still want to hug to the, my belief of 30 years ago that a, a free college education or the opportunity to avail yourself of a free college education is, is, that means something if you apply yourself is a great reward. But I, I get the bigger picture. We're not recruiting these kids to be in school, to be educated. We're recruiting them to win games or state you and make money for everybody. Right. Um, that said, uh, you know, I, on the other side of this, a lot is going to change. I mean, the NCAA's irrelevance I never, has never been more highlighted here. And, and, and they're going to be steamrolled by, by public opinion and by the realities of the moment. Right. Grail? Bob, it's great having you as always. Um, I actually wanted to ask you a question that was more COVID-related and a little bit about how the sausage is made at ESPN. Um, the, uh, the pandemic has forced all networks to do more with less. And I'm just curious if this is changing the dynamic within every broadcast company in terms of, you know, if you're a Disney figuring out, hey, I don't necessarily need to have people on location all the time. Hey, we can do it this via Zoom. Hey, we can do that. Do you see this basically changing the whole kind of TV production world moving forward as a way to save money oh, yeah. by Disney? I Well, not just everybody. Yeah. I've yeah. been saying, Grail, for months, going back to March and April, that we have a new normal in television of the bar of acceptance, like this Zoom conversation we're having, even though the audio is out there in the podcast, is acceptable now to people. That the bar of, of technical expertise, I used to have, you know, congenial fights with my technical people if I could only get a guest by by Skype uh, before Zoom or FaceTime. Ah, the quality's not good enough. Now, if you just see a distant picture like someone's in Armenia after an earthquake, you'll take them. And so that, that reality has been in place for months. And even before the COVID took us to that place, you saw, uh, for example, ESPN doing an increasing a number of games and most of their MLS, if I'm not mistaken, what they call Remy, remote broadcasts. The announcers were on site. That's not even the case anymore. And, and the technical people were back in Connecticut and you had a couple of man cameras. It was a very basic production. And I, I think for years, people in the media, we have, we have taken ourselves so damn seriously and we, you know, we try to make art when all we got to do is point the camera at the ball and follow the ball and, and document the game. And I think we, listen, it's great to advance the science of television and, 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 and creativity, but I think we have taken ourselves far too seriously and you know, all the buzzers and bells we bring to a telecast when people, especially now when they have next to nothing in terms of, you know, how, how much Netflix can you watch and how many nights, you know, and pretty soon you can't dine outside uh, in the Northeast. That, that people just want to see the games. But I watch games and I watch SNY and, and I'm, I'm watching the best broadcast team in the world, those three guys. I just think that, but I can't buy into this season because the stands are empty and I watch the NBA games and it's just, it's not this it, far, it, it's more than not just being just the same. It's just the, it, it feels like a very surreal experience and it, it doesn't feel full value. 
And, um, you know, maybe if I were a gambler and a better, I mean, I had 500 bucks down on the game, I'd feel differently. I mean, this is pseudo sports that we're seeing right now because we all miss the human connection of being in a game or at least seeing people at a game that you can identify with. Yeah, you know, we watched, we were talking on the show here about watching Premier League without any fans in the stands and just what a difference it is. I mean, in the beginning, we kind of liked it because I'm hearing the guys, you know, yell help and square ball and through and not, you know, uh, track back. They're talking all the things that looked like a great training session that you could be a part of to hear what actually goes on in the field. But boy, it quickly lost its sort of appeal. You know, really. And then we've accepted the fact, and I have a little problem with this, but I mean, I understand why we're doing it of, of, of piping in crowd noise to the telecast even piping right. in i think crowd noise to to the stadiums themselves the nfl's talking about doing i don't know you know i, I don't understand the mindset with that because i'm with you i and you know you I watch my met games and every every game gary cohen's have to apologize for somebody dropping an f-bomb because that's what guys do when they strike out or you know there's a <laughs> yeah. or call at first base <laughs> but uh, I, I I do have a little problem. I'm watching you know a premier game and and uh, you realize and, you know somebody scores and they pot it up and they, you know they then they bring in the chanting from Chelsea fans and you realize you're being manipulated. You know where's Lenny Riefenstahl? She's next. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Suddenly suddenly a DJ becomes a big part of the whole uh, you know storyline. So yeah. uh, Sam, you had a question for uh, the general? Yeah, building off that, Bob, uh, and a little bit what you were talking about earlier about things you know probably never going back to quote unquote normal. Um, do you think we've sort of reached a point with the TV games going ahead without fans in the stadium, a, a sort of acknowledgement that the game is basically made for television now, whatever game we're talking about, and the fan in the stadium is, you know, we finally acknowledge that they mean far less than the fan. Well, on. I for for pure for the pure finances of it, perhaps because people are watching and sponsors. Look, everyone's suffering in the economy, so the sponsors need need a place where they can get eyeballs. They're going to get mm-hmm. eyeballs at these events. But I'll just go back to what I just my feeling, at least, of watching these telecasts. You're watching, you know, it's a pseudo event, mm-hmm. and um, you know, if you're a Liverpool fan, did you really exult when they lift the cup and pass yeah. it around in, in front of an empty stadium? I mean, I, you know. You need, you know, you need to have people actually singing. You'll never walk alone, not a recording. I mean, because we've all been to events like that, and mm-hmm. that's what the beauty of those are. So, but you know, and it, here's the acid test uh, coming up on on your via these of your question is the NFL. I mean, the NFL is the perfect. It's the rectangular field. It's you know, it's an artificial turf. It's the ultimate television game, and Pete Rozelle created it. You know, back in the early '60s that way. Um, but I think even at that. What is interesting is this. I talked to a friend of mine who works for a, a foundational franchise in the NFL. He's been there for a number of years. And he honestly believes that this is a team that has sold out their season tickets for generations. And he thinks they're going to have an incredible amount of melt of people walking away from their tickets once they realize, you know, and it's a cold weather city, that they can sit inside. There's no line at their bathroom. They sit on, you know, they sit on the divan or, or their barca lounger and they watch. And people, I mean, I, I've fallen out of love of going to NFL games because it's, it's it, they're always vacuuming money out of your pocket. Maybe right. God bless you if I can afford it, so that's fine. But on that level, it's it's too much. It's too crowded, and you know, it's, people are too drunk, and it becomes an all-day affair if you you know getting in and out with traffic. I think you'll see some melt. My friend told me. I'll be curious to see if that's the case. When people realize. 
you know what? There are others that may want to go. I'm, I'm going to give up my chance to go. Well, you go to the game and, uh, you know, suddenly it, there's a line for the bathroom and paying $18 for a hamburger and, you know. Well, it's probably, you know, the line's shorter if you're willing to pay X hundred per ticket. I mean, you know, it's, it's right. a Darwinian existence. It's stratified. I mean, you know, if you pay. Yeah, I mean, you're Bob Lee. You're up there with the, the owner in the owner's box hanging yeah, out. Yeah. Uh, so I got a white jacket on. I'm serving the canapes, Ace. <laughs> exactly. I'm doing jokes for them. Yeah. Uh, Grail? Yeah, Bob, uh, I had a question for you about outside the lines, which uh, – I'll go on the record as saying was the, it is the greatest investigative sports show ever, and there was no better host than you. So there you go. Get a room. That's it. <laughs> no, no. I'm just curious, though, as a fan of the show, you were often reporting about your partners at right. ESPN. And I'm just curious. I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear how tricky that could become when you're doing investigative journalism about the people who are investing money in oh. the company and how tricky that was. And, you know, and even some examples of where you had to maybe cancel a story or you no. pressured no. or whatever, just in general. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great, great question is a great area of inquiry. And I think there, it's, there are at times um, misconceptions about that, but, I mean, look, let's get it out of the way. There was the one incident back in 2013 when the network took its name off of a PBS uh, cooperative effort on, um, on, on concussions, League of Denial. However, you know, history will note uh, that we, from that, you know, even as that was making news, we never, we did extremely aggressive reporting. We had the authors on, so it was kind of a moot point. Um, my experience has always been, it, it all starts with support for management. And in my time there, and my understanding is it continues, if you've got the people on the next floor up in the corner offices who have your back, and more than have your back, believe in your mission, that's more important than having your back, and, and understand that they are the people that have to manage that relationship. It's not my job to manage the relationship with the NFL. It's my job to sit in a room with Joe Lockhart about four or five years ago and, and basically take a, a congenial verbal tongue lashing on our on the way difference of opinion on the way that our network has reported on concussions and it was you know it, it was it was a professional conversation we agreed to disagree and i think some positive things came out of it i'm you know joe's not with the league any longer so i feel confident you know talking about this and i, I respect him um if you go through the front door when you're not reporting on a story and, and you, you ask for comment and you ask for guests on the show and we're going to report this, or if you're the Fainerer brothers, you know, Mark or Steve, and you, and you make every effort to talk to Roger Goodell or all the people involved in the story, and they choose not to, you know, and I just use that because that's probably the most prominent example, and they choose not to comment, well, then they leave you no, no recourse but to, you know, to note they have not reported or commented and, and report your story. What you do is make sure that everybody in your organization knows you're working on sensitive stories, so they have to manage the relationships, and so that nobody is surprised by anything. And the last thing you want to do is surprise somebody in your own company um, who's working on a, you know, who manages the relationship with the league, and then you know a story drops. You bring them in, you tell them what's going on, and quite often that relationship may actually help you get comment. Mm -hmm. But as far as self-censorship or, or changing the scope of a story that I know people love to, to find boogeyman and, and look around for, for examples of that, but it, 
we don't waste time in my experience when I was there, we didn't waste a lot of time thinking about it. We had the story to do. We had to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, we we're on deadline. We had to be fair and accurate. That was our concern. And we want your opinion, Mr. Commissioner or Mr. Vice President of the league. And because it's not a complete story without it, you choose not to comment. Fine. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, Bob, you, you know, I've been watching you 30 years on ESPN and it's interesting. I, you know, I have no idea from watching you on television where you lie politically like your political views never come on as a journalist right i mean it seems like the networks uh maybe have gotten away from that a little bit um do, do you want to kind of, i mean was that hard hard for you to just sort of the objective yeah, objectivity is absolutely objectivity nuance and critical thinking have been floated out to the ambrose lightship and sunk in the atlantic ocean <laughs> absolutely yeah, put yeah. a knee on this. Put a knee on this podcast. Um, and it's 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 a goddamn shame. Um, you know what what CNN has done to itself by turning news shows into commentary programs with inflammatory topic bars. I mean, it, look, this is a unique presidency. We understand that unique is a very neutral word. I chose by design. Yeah. And if you just report the facts without nudging and winking and spiking the ball in the end zone and acting like you've been there before when you're, you know, fact checking a story, you would think, but you know, that's not the problem is, is the goddamn media, which I'm, I'm, there are days I'm glad not to be part of. Um, it's clickbait. It's, it's traffic, it's ad dollars. It's provoking you into choosing to watch that because you agree with me and stick with it. And I may going to watch Fox and SNBC because I want to see what the two disparate universes are talking about. And it's also interesting to me uh, as someone who still, you know, does a lot with college students to see how they're, they're, you know, treating or not treating the same story. But yeah, I, I absolutely have definite political views and ideas, but my job is not, yeah, my view isn't more important than your view or the other guy, you know, the 10,000th person in line. I mean, we're, give you the facts. Those days are largely over. And I, I've talked to a lot of colleagues about that, people I respect the hell out of. And we all despair at it. And we all are commonly, I think, coming to a, a group conclusion that, that talk about things that won't get back to normal. I don't think this will get back to normal. And it, that's, that's a shame. I mean, what the media is going to look like in this country in, in mid-November, if we do not have a clarified uh, electoral picture after November 3rd, I mean, it's going to be a bleep show, boys. Yeah. Where, it, will, you, where will you get you? What I, at the very least, what I hope I can do when I speak to, to people is, is educate you as a news consumer. If you watch something, ask yourself the question, what am I watching? Who is this person or organization? And can I trust them to be accurate? And what is, what, what's their dog in this fight? Uh, because you have, it's a shame, but you have to factor that in. And, and from the New York Times down to, you know, Breitbart, everybody's got motivation and nobody has clean hands. You know, it used to be that network news was not a money-making situation. It was, uh, you know, subsidized by the network in yeah. other ways to sort of give, you know, the public discourse to put the news out there. So that's certainly changed. I mean, it's all become about money, like you said, Bob. So I, I yeah, I don't think we're going back. And like you said, after this pandemic, uh, to see no one knows what to believe, uh, you know, alternate facts, alternative facts. That was like day two of this, this administration. I think it was Kellyanne Conway said the statement. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's, it, and I, let me be clear. I'm not saying one side or the other is more guilty than the other. I mean, it, I think it's such a toxic atmosphere that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting in my basement. Some days I don't want to come out of it. Just send the meals down. 
Oh, well, I know some guys I went to college with, they're still in their parents' basement. At least in your, you're in your own basement, Bob, after all, <laughs> after your work. Grail? Yeah, uh, we love you for your uh, soccer loyalty, Bob. So I've got a, a soccer-related question for you. Just over the last decade plus, there's been a lot of uh, Middle Eastern money coming into the big clubs. So this is a slightly political question, but I'm just curious what you think of that and what that is, you know, they, they, they kind of coin it as soft power. It's an ability for a country to use a club to get a political message out there about their country. I'm just curious what you feel about that trend other than the billions of dollars that are pumped into the various leagues. Well, I think though, the this is, this is where the media can do a good job to remind us who owns what and why, and what are the symptoms of using a team or a a championship as a political advantage. And you mentioned Middle Eastern money, but I'd be a lot more concerned about Russian money. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Middle Eastern nations aren't poisoning people who disagree with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and journalists. And getting political, but I mean, I mean, yeah. this, this stuff is scary. So, um, I, I, listen, money, I'm a globalist in that, you know, if you, uh, I, there should be open trade. And, 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 you know, I was talking to my brother is a, um, one of the first, I think it was the fourth in line all time as a Philadelphia Union season ticket holder. I mean, he has been there from the drop. And, we, we, and he knows a lot more about MLS than I do because he lives and breathes it. And, I, you know, I was, I was just talking to him the other day uh, about how you know, the NASL used to have the three North Americans on the, you know, fourth. first it was four, that was down to three. MLS has chosen not to do that. And you hear some talk that, well, where has the American player gone in MLS? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we really believe in open markets and not open borders, but open markets and free trade and a meritocracy, then the best players should be playing and, and the best owners should be owning. And, you know, phone, fans can vote with uh, their phones and, and their dollars to stay away if, if somebody's not getting it done. And that's hard. And I've changed my view on that, Bob, because I've been, you know, I was a product of, you know, they needed an American player. And I got, I got a chance to get on the pitch with guys way in over my head uh, coming out of college and then, you know, playing in the pros. And I, I needed a good six months, a good six months just to have the speed of the game be something I could actually recognize and try to, you know, be a part of. Um, so as an American player, I used to say, we just need a chance a little bit. Um, of course, I was doing most of the public appearances and stuff because I could speak English. Uh, which always helps, but uh, but well, I I believe that's, that's you, you think you that's think. debatable. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say now that I I want to watch good soccer, and if you're not good enough to get on the pitch, then you're not good enough to get on the pitch. So um, I, I've changed I've changed my mind there. Grail. Uh, no, that was me. Yeah. I had a question. Um, I'm curious, Bob, because talking about soccer and, you know, you've covered it for a long time in a lot of different places. Is, is it harder to keep politics out of a game like soccer that is so global and, you know, so often you have teams from different countries playing versus sports in the U.S., which are a little more contained? That's a good question. Um, but, I, I mean, certainly around the World Cup, you're going to have that. But I, I think, I think that, that the best club soccer in the world puts people from all of these various nations together, I think is, is almost an apolitical affirmation that people can, you know, we don't have time in this locker room, whether it's in the Bundesliga or the premiership to, you know, to, to talk politics. Now that the EPL, um, you know, immediately and, and across the board bought into black lives matter and, and into racial equity and, and did those things I think was, 
was great. I mean, was tremendous. And I, you know, from my limited experiences traveling, and I don't pretend to be, you know, fully knowledgeable. I've often felt that, for example, the UK was 20 or 25 years behind the United States when it came to racial matters. I mean, they right. took them a long time to confront the overt racism of things being thrown and yelled at players. And finally, you know, there and on the continent, it's been addressed in Eastern Europe and Russia. It's still a bleep show. Nightmare. But I, I think, not to sound Pollyannish, I, it, I, I think there is, there is a, there is an uplifting uh, aspect to you know, a polyglot team playing well. And plus they all have the motivation is we got to get along. Otherwise we don't stay rich because the money in the game. I mean, it, 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 and it, if that is a motivation to get along and set a good example, then there's nothing wrong with it. I, I've seen like at a national level, national team level, these players all play with each other all the time on different, you know, their clubs. Uh, you know, we look at the old world cup stories about, uh, you know, England getting on a ship and going to Brazil uh, or going to uh, Uruguay and, you know, for these games and these players never knew each other. And it was a very adversarial situation. Now you see these players, they're, they're playing with each other. And then in the World Cup, they're all high-fiving and they're buddies. So that, uh, that's changed quite a bit. But what I was impressed at, Bob, with that whole, how the Black Lives Matter hit the English Premier League, if, you know, because we've been talking about it on this show forever. If something happens to one of your players of color, all the players should be upset. And it seemed like, again, America influenced what was happening, um, you know, overseas and in the rest of the world. And you and I, when we were at, when I was at ESPN for a brief shining moment, uh, uh, we did the story on um, when the attorney general brought up charges uh, against FIFA. And we, I had said on my show, you know, both of us, Grail, for months ahead of time, the only way this will change is when the United States legal system steps in and does something because, you know, FIFA was so corrupt. And boy, have Why they do you use the past tense? I know. I was just thinking of that. It's, it's, it's coming out of my mouth. Your, and I'm your like, well, tenses need a lot of work, dude. <laughs> I know. Well, they're still, you know, so we could say that they were called on the carpet. Yeah. And uh, hey, meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. I yeah. I, listen, we all know the rest of the world does business in a different fashion. And I'm, you know, not necessarily bad, but different than the United States. You know, ethics laws are different. And that, for years, that was the fig leaf that people would hide behind and not really acknowledging what the hell was going on with people. And then it all blew up. Well, we've caught up in the bribing and the, the kickback department, I'll tell you that, in a couple of short years, I'll tell you. Hey, let me, let me ask you this. So, um, I, you know, look, we talked politics and I, you know, uh, I still don't know where you stand politically and I think that's probably a good thing. Um, but. I talked about Tom Seaver at the top of the show and, you know, what he meant to me. He was one of my idols. Uh, I know you're a Mets fan. Uh, do you have anything uh, about Tom Seaver that you can talk about? I know he was a class oh, act. Jesus. I was watching. We're recording this the day after Tom died. Um, last night, my wife and I were watching our, our buddy, the musician, Jeff Kazee, who does a, a nightly uh, pandemic uh, or a weekly pandemic um, concert from his living room. He's a tremendous, he's the keyboardist, the musical director for Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Wow. In fact, we're going to see him on, on Saturday at Litchfield County, the Jukes are doing the show. And in the middle of the show, his wife, and, and Jeff's a, an Ohioan, and uh, he's a Buckeye, and he's a big Reds fan. In the middle of the show, his wife calls him off camera, and we're watching this in our living room. Tom Seaver died. And I, you know, I, I lost it. Um, he was the best pitcher I ever saw. Uh, the greatest I've been fortunate to do a lot of uh, interesting things in television. And one of the greatest honors I had in 1992 was that I wrote and narrated the package that was used at Cooperstown when Tom was inducted into the Hall of Fame. 
Um, oh, wow. And, and I, I've traveled to Cooperstown on one, except for business, on one occasion, and that was to attend Tom's um, Hall of Fame induction. And I, I, I shamelessly pulled, tick, you know, ranked to get some tickets about 10 rows back. I wouldn't have <laughs> missed that for the world. He was the balls. He was it. He was, he was, and I, I, my one regret is I attended one game of the 69 World Series. It was game one in Baltimore. It was a series, a long story, a series of circumstances. I was 14. Tom had pitched there. It was game two, actually. I attended. He pitched game one and lost it. He always joked he was the first Met pitcher to lose a World Series game. Uh, if you look on social media and you read Mike Vaccaro's piece in the post says it all. I mean, it was a hammer blow. Uh, I'm still emotional about it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's up there with, you know, Namath and Bobby Orr it just transcended the sport itself. He was, he was the best. And at the time when he went into the hall of fame, um, was it Rivera was, was unanimous, right? Was mm-hmm. he not? Um, yeah. But, in, but until that point, I think Tom had said that you know, there was five idiots who didn't vote him into the Hall of Fame? Like, what else did you need? Oh my goodness! I like to say but, we should we should out whoever those five were. Yeah. Say yeah. talk about revision. Yeah. All, I, I, I bet you they all say they voted for him at this point. They probably change it when they're talking to their grandkids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's just uh, all of us. If the producer Matt Sanduli, who produced that piece with me, texted me last night, and he said he was trying to not start crying. I said, "Oh, too bad. I beat you to it." Yeah, yeah, Grail. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him, Bob, uh, at uh, when I worked at Sports Illustrated and just a, a class act. And, you know, the interesting thing about Tom Seaver as a pitcher was he was one of the few guys where people talk so much about technique and his whole thing was the legs, yeah. you know, driving with your legs. And that whole part of pitching seems to have just gone by the wayside. I mean, he was such a proponent of that, and that's where he got a lot of his power and his velocity and whatever, and I just feel like that's such such a bygone era, right? Those conversations well, about that. He would always he, he he would no one talked ever talked more intelligently about pitching than Tom Seaver, uh, and to the point about power in the legs. What's the one image you have of him? Is he would drive so hard off the mound he he his knees would hit the dirt. He had dirt on the knees like he'd been a base runner. Um, and, and, and to his approach to his profession, which was just totally professional, was when they retired his number at Shea, um, what did he do? He's, I remember his remarks today. He said, if you know how I approached pitching, I think you'll appreciate what I'd like to do now. And he just bowed to each section of Shea four times in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it's perfect. Tough. Mm-hmm. Tough loss. Class act. Well... Well, uh, Bob, we appreciate you jumping on over the ball with us today sure. uh, from, from your undisclosed bunker, hanging out there in your new location. Well, I'm, I'm having lunch with Dick Cheney down here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then we're going duck God, hunting. God spare us all. Yeah, we're <laughs> going duck hunting next. <laughs> Just make sure he's carrying a BB gun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wear a helmet, Bob. I know that's not usual <laughs> duck hunting gear, but. No, that's all right. <laughs> well, Bob, you know, Bob, we only covered soccer a little bit here. This is a soccer podcast, but we appreciate you sharing your views on uh, yeah. all things in the state of the game, uh, state of the games, the state of the country, politics, sports. Uh, we covered a lot with you today, and we appreciate it. And please join us again on Over the Ball. Uh, it'd be a fun time to do it, guys. Take care. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. Ah, 
Love talking to the general, Bob Lee, huh? He's like, we got oh, some political God. stuff out of him. I've never heard him talk about that stuff uh, when it's being recorded or on air. And, you know, like I said, you know, 35 years watching him, uh, you didn't know what his political views were. And, then, you know, yeah. on a sports yeah. broadcaster. You know? I think Bob is like the Jim McKay of ESPN. And I hope he takes that as the compliment that it's intended. Just because... He, he superseded every, like his knowledge and his involvement across so many areas of the network and the respect that he garnered internally and externally just puts him in a, you know, he's like, he's like the, the central figure of the Mount Rushmore of ESPN in my, in my book, because the, the time he put in, plus just outside the lines and soccer and the quality of work that he did just always stood for quality. No, he was country when country wasn't cool for us as far as soccer yeah. was concerned. I mean, he gave it, you know, he was a legit talent at ESPN. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of the talent, they wanted to do major league baseball. They wanted to do a football. They wanted to do, you know, and, and he loved and cherished soccer. Got his early start in the Cosmo years. And um, as the announcer, you know, the, you know, just the stadium announcer and then moved his way up. I mean, he's a, uh, it's uh, it, it was great to talk to him, and we miss him. We miss him. Yeah, nobody nobody did a better job of kind of emceeing the World Cup coverage than Bob oh, Lee. He I was think, just yeah. fantastic. In terms of ESPN ceremony. coverage, I don't think they've you know taken the next step. I, you know, since he left, I don't. I think their coverage is, you know, don't want to be too critical, but I think it's taken a, a bit I, of a fine. I think everybody's in a wait and see period over there because. You know, look, uh, they have the rights to MLS. Domestically, the numbers aren't so great. So I understand uh, them giving it sort of short shrift in, in some ways. Uh, I know they lost when the president, John Skipper, who was a big soccer fan, left. Perhaps they maybe didn't do it there. Their big show is ESPN FC. There's no American presence on that show at all, yeah. uh, though they talk you know, about the world. So it's it seems to be drifting away a little well, bit. Well, they're also they're also competing so much with streaming services, mm -hmm. um, pay per view, and and digital, obviously. So the, you know it's hard to be, you know, Sports Center was always the anchor of programming for them. And by the way, by the time Sports Center comes on, it's like old news because everybody's getting instant news via the internet. So I think yeah. you know their biggest challenge over the last five plus years has been how do we stay timely and then also have shows like outside the lines that are just fantastic quality programming and not just have talk shows all day long right yeah that was the 60 minutes of uh sports journalism wow. that show. so hey uh grail this this i want to hit you up with this item really quick i haven't uh, i'm just going to spring it on you but brazil announced equal pay for men and women's soccer what what is behind that because yeah. i don't see that because brazil has not supported their women's team very well and I mean, uh, the, kind of a machismo, sexist sort of, you know, and yet here, are they paying equal? Well, the way I read it, Flinny, was kind of the way that the U.S. women's national team is, is how I think it's going to work out. It's like equal pay in terms of per diem and, um, you know, wh where you say hotels, what, travel, what, what hotels, travel, the, the quality of your training facilities, stuff like that. But from a pure salary basis, I didn't take it as being our women's national team players will be paid the exact same amount as our men's national team players. Again, I, you know, if, if I misread that, that's on me, but that's, I took it more as what we've talked about with many people, Stephen Bank, the lawyer, other people about just the idea that there's going to be equity amongst those types of things, but not just equal pay. 
And I just still think so much apples and oranges and talking to people, you know, civilians out there about their perception of what's happening with the men's and women's teams around the world. You know, the, the players, the men's players make most of their money playing for their, their team, their, their uh, you know, domestic league teams. And then um, the women make most of their money playing for the national team. So it's, uh, you know, guaranteed contracts versus, you know, uh, ever-changing rosters. It's tons of stuff. And most people, including, you know, very... Um, you know, legit journalists have not just misrepresented what the actual facts are. It's, it's unfortunate. So, yeah, I mean, and I think that the women's national team, the U S women's national team will get a good deal. It may not be ultimately what they wanted, but it's going to be infinitely better than it currently is. Yeah. All right, Sam, what do you got? Uh, for yeah, us? I got a little stats slash quiz for you guys to wrap it up. I took a week off last week. I apologize for that, but I'm back. You lazy bum. Um, so God. yeah, as usual, I'll just, I'll spin the whole story. So watching a little MLS over the past few weeks, um, mm -hmm. very little, um, but I hate to be negative here, but you I'm just sure. were, but yeah, <laughs> get it out of the way. That, that's like saying with all due respect, yeah, but yeah. not for, not for nothing. <laughs> I'm struck by and curious to hear your guys take uh, one, how, you know, often the ball seems to be possessed by neither team as in it's just sort of like bouncing around. Yeah. Uh, and two, how often the ball is out of bounds, you know, how often they're not actually playing. <laughs> so uh, I looked into this a little bit to see if there are any statistics kind of back. Wow. Um, so the first thing I found, which is interesting is that there are two ways actually to calculate possession in a soccer game. And there are kind of two debating camps on this. Um, one is sort of the way you might imagine where someone just sits with like a chess clock basically, and just taps from one to the other when the team has the ball. Uh, the other one is, and this is kind of considered more advanced is dividing the number of passes completed by each team against the overall number of passes in the game. So that's saying that possession is when you're actually mm -hmm. moving the ball around, not just holding it. I mean, it's like right. a goalie sitting in his goal, holding the ball. Um, so what's interesting though, is this difference does lead to some pretty big discrepancies in statistics, you know, sometimes as much as five, 6%. Um, so I found that kind of interesting, um, but I found no statistic other than passes completed, which sheds light really on how much time in a game a team actually possesses the ball. So yeah. you can say, okay, they have the ball 60% versus 40%, but right. like how much time is that versus the game? Um, maybe there are more advanced stats I don't know about, but I'd like to see this included in broadcasts. Um, and I think it would be interesting to know. Um, for my other question about the ball being in play, there is a statistic kept, which is called effective playing time which mm -hmm. is something that I remember from uh, being in Italy, they always showed at the end of the game. Uh, and what that is, is it simply counts how many minutes the ball is in play in a game. Um, this is another stat I'd like to see, you know, included in a broadcast because I think it's pretty indicative of the game. Wow. Um, so I dug into this a little bit and there's a report that came out last October uh, put out by the International Center for Sports Studies in Switzerland. So, you know, it's legit. Um, they analyzed, it's always in Switzerland, by the way, you notice that? Um, so they analyzed all the European leagues for the 2018-2019 season with this statistic. Um, and my quiz question for you guys this week is, can you tell me what percentage of time or how many minutes per 90 uh, the ball is in play? I'm, I'm talking about the average across the top four. A percentage. Here. You can give me a percentage or, or the amount of minutes. So. Bundesliga, okay. Serie A, EPL, La Liga. I'm going to say 
Okay, you want me to do it by league? No, no, no. I've okay. taken the average uh-huh. of those four leagues. Okay, and I want you I'm going to say 75% in play. Kevin? Oh, that's, that's, that's low, I think. I'd say higher than that. I'd say, I would, uh, yeah, I'm just trying I'd, to be safe. I'd say the ball's in play 90% of the time. Okay, uh, you're both way off. The average is 55.25% of the time, or just about 50 minutes per game. So breaking it down by league, the Bundesliga has 50. Out of play? The ball's out of play? That long? The ball's in play, 55.5%. Right, so it's out of play 50% of the time. Yeah, yeah. So in the Bundesliga, it's in play 57.1% or 51.4 minutes. Serie A, 55.6%. Wow. EPL, 55%. La Liga, 53.3%. Um, interestingly, the top four leagues across Europe are all Northern European leagues. The Swedish, Dutch, Finnish, and Danish league are all in the high 50s. Um, you know, so Sam, that kind of blows up the whole thing that I always talk about, which is continuous action. Well, the other thing that it shows, and there's been a push for this in recent years, people are saying, let's just have a 60-minute game where the clock just stops when, you know, there's a guy down wasting time or, and, you know, so. But wow. anyway, they're looking into it just a little bit further. It, it is interesting because the, on a club level, which they also measured, there is a direct correlation between, you know, how often the ball is in play and how good a team is. Um, so for this year, sure. the, the best team in Germany was Bayern Munich by this measure. It was Man City in England. It was Barcelona in Spain. It was actually Lazio in Italy uh, who finished in fifth place that year. So that's kind of interesting. But it shows that the better teams, you know, play more. And Well, uh, you can't yeah. score when the ball is not in play. So, I mean, there's that simple fact, right? I mean, the ball is sure. to basically be in play. Yeah. But uh, it's funny, Sam, because on the possession thing, I've always thought of possession as just being passing. Mm-hmm. I've never I thought about it as how many passes how how you're literally possessing the ball via passing versus how much time mm-hmm. you have that's a that's that's ball. a that's a really upsetting stat because like you Grell, I think this is one of the things with soccer say it's constant motion you're constantly running you're constantly moving but and it's how I sort of say if you ever have DVR'd a, an American football game it's just it's mostly just replays and talk and not play the play is very very small but to, and to Sam's point about MLS, if you could do, you know, the, the comparison is, I just think skill level has a lot. I mean, God, for I mean, if 50% of the time it's only in play at the highest skill level, right, of those leagues where they can actually trap, pass, do things better than any other leagues in the world, you can understand, like, your observation, the ball's always out of bounds. The ball's out of, well, a lot of that has to do with they're just not as good at passing, trapping hmm. and keeping the ball in play right yeah. i mean wouldn't you well, say i couldn't this? i couldn't find a number for the mls anywhere right so. right right yeah so that, that's very interesting and you're yeah. i'm with you flinny i thought it was i mean i said 75 to be conservative i thought it might be 985 or 90 percent was in play well you know certain things dictate when the ball is out of bounds and you, know, you play it on uh you know fields that were too narrow or you play in an astroturf you know the the turf fields they the ball doesn't settle oh, it just runs out it bounces around a bunch but yeah. uh, even still you're talking about some top leagues there and that's that's a pretty uh, amazing and it, and, it, and it's funny because just generally when i'm watching any let's say i was watching a Serie A match or a premier league i'm never conscious of saying oh my god there's another throw in or there's another corner. It's like all part of the action and it doesn't seem disproportionate yeah. 
right, right. that the ball's not, I'm, I'm not going, oh my God, the ball's never in play. Sam, if I watched an MLS, if I watched a game through your lens, I would think that more often. Yeah. But like guys can't connect passes. It's going out of bounds. Guys that can't trap, you know. Yeah. All right, guys. So we got some games to watch. We got this UEFA Nations League, which Sam uh, spelled out for us what it actually is. Uh, we got some, who's covering these games? Right, can we see them? Uh, I think they're on ESPN Plus and maybe on the main networks too. Okay. Well, if it's on some plus, nobody will see it. Just... Oh, that's a great well, match. I know, Sp- Sam, you'll be all over Netherlands, Italy, obviously. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. yeah good. All right, guys. Well, that's all the time we have today on OTB. Uh, it was great talking to, uh, to Bob Levy. We made some, some news there, I think. So uh, for everybody here, for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, myself, Kevin Flynn, I'd like to thank our guest, Bob Lee. We'll be talking to you next time on OTB.